Hi, this is Maria Elena Perez, and I'm the associate editor at The North Star. To answer your question, yes, you are listening to The Breakdown. On today's episode, we're going to air the fourth episode of America the Voiceless, a new podcast about the right to vote and the fight to vote, hosted by myself and the North Star's senior reporter, Nikki Rojas. If you like this episode, you can catch a new episode of America the Voiceless every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The, the, the breakdown. But the, the, the whole, you don't get to vote, it seems like it's thrown in there very, very much on purpose. You know what I'm saying? Like it has no, really nothing to do with anything that you're in trouble for, unless you're in trouble for voter fraud. Millions of Americans like Natty are stripped of their voting rights when they're convicted of felonies, and the journey to regain those rights can often be a lifelong mission. On this week's episode, we'll talk about roadblocks faced by Americans going through the criminal justice system who simply want to exercise their right to vote. Rojas. And I'm Maria Elena Perez. We're the hosts of America the Voiceless. We believe all Americans have a voice, but too many Americans face roadblocks when it comes to casting their vote. America the Voiceless looks into the barriers many Americans have to overcome to make sure their voices are heard during the voting process. Americans who have gone through the criminal justice system face incredible difficulties when it comes to exercising their constitutional right to vote. Individuals who are in jail awaiting charges or sentencing often don't have access to their ballots. And when they do, there's a lack of civic education to make informed voting decisions. Of course, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Millions of Americans who have been convicted of felonies are stripped of their voting rights. In 2016, an estimated 6.1 million Americans were affected by felony disenfranchisement. The road to regain that right is a difficult one, filled with bureaucratic red tape and modern-day poll taxes. But we're now seeing more states restore those rights through new laws and executive orders. In our fourth episode, we'll hear from three different perspectives as we discuss the voting barriers placed on Americans who go through the criminal justice system. We spoke to Nicole Porter, the Director of Advocacy at the Sentencing Project, and Dr. Jane Gubzer, the Executive Director of Programs at Cook County Jail. Both women are fierce advocates for voting and jail initiatives and expanding voting rights to Americans affected by felony disenfranchisement. We also spoke with artist Natty from Cunning Linguist, who told us about his time in prison and the pains he went through to regain his voting rights after being released. He'll be voting for the very first time this November. You know, I think when people think of voting rights and the criminal justice system, they first jump to felony disenfranchisement. But individuals' voting rights are affected much sooner, even before they're convicted of any crimes. Nicole explained to us the lack of information when it comes to voting while detained in jail. So the reality is, is that people who are pretrial in jail, leading up to any election, whether or not it's a general election or a primary, never lose the right to vote. So as citizens, we have the right to vote. And um, 
when we break the social contract and have a felony conviction or in prison, there may be times when our voting rights are limited, but as citizens um, born in the United States, you constitutionally have the right to vote. And some of those voting rights might be restricted depending on where you live and your justice involvement. But yes, in jails where people are held pretrial and in many jails where people are sentenced to misdemeanors, they have the right to vote. The question is ballot access and ensuring that individuals have the right to vote. So it's ignorance and it's overlooking the fact that there are literally tens of thousands of individuals, hundreds of thousands of individuals in any given election who should be guaranteed a right to vote and should and are easy to find in many ways. Just the question is um, accessing, um, the, you know, giving them the access to their ballot. Nicole noted that there are a handful of counties around the U.S. that are working to make their jails into polling places for those awaiting trial. The first to do that in the nation is Cook County Jail in Illinois. Chicago's Cook County Jail is the first facility in the country to have its own polling precinct inside the jail to offer voting for pretrial detainees. According to the Chicago Clerk's Office, more than 1,200 detainees have voted in Illinois' primary election already, and that doesn't include those who voted this past weekend. Dr. Gubser spoke to us about why it was so important for the jail to get its voting in jail initiative in motion earlier this year. The jail became a fully functioning polling location in March, just in time for the Illinois primaries. And it'll be a polling location again for the general elections in November. It's not fair for us to to not allow people to act as citizens when it is their right to do so. Um, and, and so often we're, we hear every day on TV, you know, if you don't like what you see, um, you know, don't don't act out violently. Um, don't do the different things that have been going around uh, the nation. What you should do is you should exercise your right to vote. And, and we hear that nationwide about that's what our response should be in order to make a change in in the nation. And when we take when we strip people of their ability to do so, we're really leaving people with no rights at all. One of the things that kept coming up in our conversations with Dr. Gubzer and Nicole and even Natty was this feeling of a lack of education. It starts even before a person is even convicted of a crime. The challenge with incarcerated residents is making sure that they know that they can vote. If they're not registered to vote, ensuring that they have access to voter registration. And then given that most of this will be done absentee, making sure that incarcerated residents have access to those absentee ballots and that they can get them in in time leading up to any election cycle. I don't want to downplay the challenges around this. I mean, people have a constitutional right to vote. Where the barriers come in is access and implementation and whether or not someone is infringing on their rights intentionally or just because of ignorance or um, lack of confidence. And I think there's a mix of all of that happening that make it incredibly challenging for the hundreds of thousands of residents to vote from jail. But that's one of the issues that Cook County, at least, is trying to address with its voting in jails initiative. 
Dr. Gubzer told us that the county jail has worked to provide a full-circle civic education to those being held at the jail even before they head to the ballot box. But unfortunately, and maybe to no one's surprise, the people most affected by these voting restrictions or barriers are people of color. Nicole attributed this to the disproportionate impact the criminal justice system has on communities of color. So the disproportionate impact of voter disenfranchisement on communities of color is a cumulative consequence related to the disproportionate impact of the criminal justice system on communities of color. So, you know, since the early 80s, all residents in the United States have a higher chance of coming in contact with the police. Once residents have a high chance of coming in contact with the police, they have a high chance of getting arrested, a higher chance of being charged with a crime, and a higher chance of going to prison or jail. Much of that it is felt intensely within communities of color because communities of color reside in communities that are over-policed. They tend to reside in communities that are in, um, in the city core, so in the city center, and those are communities that have high rates of police presence and in, in contact, resulting in those high rates of arrest, leading to high rates of incarceration. I mean, it makes sense that communities that are most often over-policed are typically those that are disproportionately overrepresented in the criminal justice system. Dr. Gubser was pretty candid about that fact and why it is especially important that these communities be heard during the election process. Um, and as we know, there's, there's individuals who are from underprivileged communities or they, they don't have all the same resources that I myself as a, as a privileged woman have. And so many of those people are not able to exercise their rights because they're locked, they're locked away here at the Cook County Jail. Mm-hmm. Um, and then their voices may become unheard. And they represent a, a very important part of our community. And it's especially important for people who have the lived experiences that they do, who are the ones who are interfacing with the criminal justice system. Um, they are the ones who are working with the public defender's office and with the judges. Um, and they're very much experiencing firsthand what it's like to, uh, to interact with systems um, that are put into place through elections. And for them not to have the ability to express their right to vote, um, it's really a disservice to the entire system because they are the consumers of this system that, we, that we're running. There was one thing that really stayed with me from our conversation with Nicole when we spoke about the communities most affected by this form of voter suppression. And what was that? She said, felony disenfranchisement has been intensely racialized following the Civil War. That's a pretty clear indication that felony disenfranchisement is not only a tool of voter suppression, but one that is specifically aimed at Black Americans. I mean, Natty definitely felt that way. He questioned why felony disenfranchisement was even a form of punishment. Natty, do you think that these voting restrictions on unincarcerated and and formerly incarcerated individuals is is a form of voter suppression? Oh, definitely, because it makes no sense. I mean, I, I, I don't even 
I don't even know why you throw that measure in there. You know, you don't want a violent person, you know, having a right to bear arms. Sure, I can understand that. But the the, the whole you don't get to vote, it seems like it's thrown in there very very much on purpose. You know what I'm saying? Like it has no, really nothing to do with anything that you're in trouble for unless you're in trouble for voter fraud. <laughs> like I, I don't really know what that, why that precaution is even in there. Natty was only a teenager when he entered the criminal justice system in Kentucky and barely into his 20s when he was released. He explained just how much of a struggle it was to regain his right to vote. I was 18 years old at the time, and I wasn't—I I didn't even consider rights to vote or any hell. I was—I hadn't even picked a place to live and function as an adult yet. So picking the president just was not, or any other office for that matter, was not on my uh, radar at the time. So I didn't realize uh, how important the rights stripped away from you were that you'd never get them back. There was just not an understanding of that when going in that. You know, you're going to have to fight tooth and nail to get any of these rights back. So that was difficult. So this will be my first year. Unfortunately, I guess I'm going to have to waste my first vote on Joe Biden. But, hey, it is what it is. Natty spent years trying to get his voting rights back. He went to seminars and tried to regaining his rights, but had to push through a lot of bureaucratic red tape. It wasn't until Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir restored the rights of formerly incarcerated individuals with felony convictions through an executive order in December of last year that Natty finally regained his right to vote. It really uh, didn't sink in until I was old enough and, uh, and, and grown enough to care about what was going on as far as like the laws in my city and state and in my country and who was running it. And when I was old enough to take interest in it, by the time I was old enough to take interest in those things, I realized what had been done uh, when I was 18 and what they do to most felons is really by design. You know, it's difficult to get back by design and it's very easy to lose by design. And Governor Bashir isn't the only governor to restore voting rights through executive order. In August, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds restored the voting rights of individuals with felony convictions once they complete their sentence. Iowa, as you may know, had one of the most extreme laws when it comes to banning people with felony convictions from being able to vote. Before Governor Reynolds' executive order, the state had a lifetime voting ban for anyone with a felony conviction. That ban affected an estimated 52,000 people, including 10% of eligible Black voters in the state, according to a 2016 report by the Sentencing Project. Just under 90 days before Election Day, and today, through an executive order, Governor Reynolds restored the voting rights of 40,000 Iowans with past felony convictions Executive Order 7 allows most felons to vote once they have completed their prison sentence. The order does not require those felons to make full financial restitution to their victims first, and it does not automatically restore the voting rights of felons convicted of murder, attempted murder, fetal homicide, and some sex offenses. Those felons would still have to ask the governor to have their voting rights restored. Nicole mentioned that there's plenty of misinformation when it comes to knowing whether a person with a felony conviction can vote, particularly because that depends on the state they live in. 
And state governments don't always do a great job of educating people about their voting rights and whether they have to apply to have them restored. The general narrative is is that people, um, you know, believe that anyone with a felony might not be able to vote. And so there's a lot of addressing that misinformation that has to happen nationally and within states and at the local level. And then in states, because the laws have changed or there are confusing laws, there's de facto disenfranchisement happening and not enough education happening by the state agencies who should be tasked with informing their electorates of their right to vote. Right. And we're seeing this happening all over the country, especially places like Florida, which restored voting rights to individuals with felony convictions in March 2019, but placed a crazy amount of conditions on those voting rights. People with felony convictions in the state are forced to pay what amounts to a poll tax in order to vote in Florida. You know, the United States was always a country that worked to limit voting rights very early on in the history only white propertied male landowners could vote. And this idea of limiting the vote to certain categories of residents, as opposed to ensuring that all residents have the right to vote is just deeply ingrained in the United States history. It's racialized and it's elitist. The systems in Florida, like much of the rest of the country, are built to make sure that those with felony convictions don't exercise their right to vote, even if they've regained that right. Florida is forcing people with felony convictions to pay fines and fees before being able to vote, creating a lot of confusion for folks who thought they'd be able to vote once they completed their sentences. Right, and so then we're forced to rely on charities or even celebrities like NBA star LeBron James to step in and help these people pay off these fines and get their rights fully restored. LeBron and other celebrities created the More Than a Vote organization back in June to protect the voting rights of Black Americans. Weeks after the announcement, the group helped people in Florida with prior felony convictions to pay off their outstanding fines and fees so they can register to vote for the November election. Because ultimately, these are the people who should be voting. When you want your right to vote, that means, to me, it means you care, you know, to a degree about the country that you're living in. And when they take away that right, they essentially don't want you to care They just want you to get governed. You know, they just want you to be told what to do. Since you have zero dog in the fight, you know, it's very easy to become complacent. And I think that's what's desired. Natty didn't hold back when he spoke about why it's so important for people of color, especially those who've gone through the criminal justice system, to care about their voting rights. Uh, as as minorities, as black and brown folks in this country, we have a tendency, we've had a tendency in the past to not care who's really governing us because we don't see much of the change in our day-to-day lives. You know, you know, people are starting to wake up and see, uh, yes, these things do matter. And not just who your president is, who your, uh, who your district attorney is, who your judges are, all, the, all those things matter. Thank you for joining us for this episode of America the Voiceless. Tune in next week as we jump into the first part of a two-part series into how immigrants are affected by the voting process. And we need to understand that without immigrants, we don't really have um, a society. You know, America is not America without immigrants. 
And I think that's really important for people to know that. To know that. A special thank you to our podcast producer and engineer, Willis Polk, and the staff at the North Star. This podcast is brought to you by the North Star, an independent media site fully supported by our members on thenorthstar.com. If you're not already a member, we'd love for you to subscribe so we can support our work. You can catch a fresh episode of America the Voiceless every Thursday on Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you listen to podcasts.